iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If a computer can see as well as, as a human, it should change everything, really every industry in the world. And so my, my, my thesis was, look, this is going to be this is going to be as big as the mobile revolution, as big as the Internet revolution. And I've got to be I've got to be in here on the ground floor. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you all are doing well. I am myself. I'm recovering from a very nasty cold passed along to me by my three-year-old. So I've spent the last couple days um, horizontal trying to recover. But uh, amidst, amidst my convalescing, I did get vertical, or at least I sat up in a chair, long enough to have a super interesting conversation about the future of shopping. Uh, specifically about cashierless stores. Now, we have heard all about Amazon Go, which uh, these stores that have popped up in a few cities here and there around the U.S., but for, for most, going into a store, grabbing what you want, and then just walking out is not something that, that they've experienced. Well, this week's guest reckons he's about to change all of that. His name is Jordan Fisher, and he's the founder of Standard Cognition, which is a startup here in San Francisco. And they have created a system using cameras, some very clever computer vision algorithms, and lots of legwork behind the scenes to create a whole library of product images. And all that together to create the first cashierless checkout system that can be implemented in just about any store as opposed to Amazon Go, which has to be kind of purpose-built for using the technology that Amazon has. So, the question is, obviously, is this the end of the cashier? Not yet. But long-term, it could be. And if you want to know how this all works, and when you might start seeing this technology crop up in your neighborhood, you know, grocery store or convenience store, liquor store, whatever it may be, this is the pod for you. It is a brave new world. So without further ado, I give you Jordan Fisher, the founder of Standard Cognition, talking about the future of shopping as we know it and how he ended up working on this after previous gigs making a video game and then helping the SEC catch insider trading, as you do. Anyhow, enjoy. Obviously, I think what you guys are doing is fascinating but i'd love to get a sense of just how you came to do what you're doing starting standard what you did before kind of what your background is if you could just give a a brief history of you and how you, how you ended up where what you're doing now yeah yeah for sure 
Uh, so I've, I've had a bit of an eclectic career. Started off as a, as a researcher in applied math, computational fluid dynamics. So I ended up, after my PhD, ended up in uh, at NYU. That's where I was, I was doing my uh, postdoc. Fascinating work, but ultimately decided that you know the institution of mathematics moves a little bit more slowly than I would perhaps like. Com- computational fluid dynamics. That's right. Yeah, actually has a lot of this was sort of pre deep learning craze. Right. Um, uh, to date myself a little bit, uh, if the if the, <laughs> the beard didn't. <laughs> um, but actually had a lot of lot. There's a lot of computational similarities between that world and the deep learning world. So it kind of set me up to to be able to jump into that more effectively. Right. But yeah, it was it was a it was a cool cool world to be in for sure. So what were you doing? You were in academia, basically. Or? I was in academia. Yeah, oh, that's okay. Right. But, yeah. Got you. Yep. And that what you decided that wasn't for you. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of funny because you put all the things together that you think you love, and suddenly you end up with something that you don't. And you know, I love I love math, I love research, I love working on applied problems that I think can you know have a meaningful impact on the world. And academia on the surface has all those things, but actually, when you're in it, it just feels feels like a like you're mired in a bog. And you're just yeah. not <laughs> you're just not really making the impact that you want to have on the world. Eh, but. Not, not to speak too negatively about it. No, no. Sorry. <laughs> um, so you did that for, for how long? Uh, so, I mean, after my PhD, I did one more year in academia uh, before, I, before I, I dropped out, basically. I don't right. know if it's called dropping out. I guess it's called quitting at that point. Yeah. It's a, it's a job. <laughs> and I originally, uh, I kind of wanted to do a tech startup right after that, but I had this, I'm also a video game fanatic, and I was working on a video game on my spare time. And I, I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to get this game launched. I always, it's kind of been a lifelong dream. Let's yeah. do a, like a one real video game. I thought it would take a few more months and ended up taking three years of my life. Three uh, years. Of, actually. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's not including the sort of part-time before that yeah. video games are a lot of work. Um, it's kind of like the same emotional and time investment of a startup, uh, but without the financial upside. Yeah. What kind of, what kind of game was it? Uh, so it was a console game. Indie, obviously we were small. It was called Cloudberry and it was kind of, Kind of like Mario on crack is how I would describe it, if I can use that phrase. Um, basically, like you know, take it to the to eleven in terms of the difficulty, uh, which was a lot of fun. We ended up launching it on Xbox, PlayStation, the oh, Wii U wow. at the time, with Nintendo, uh, which was a lot of fun. It was also where I met Michael, who's our he's our CEO and uh, he, he runs our our business development. We originally joined forces because he was doing the the, the BD side of getting the game launched on right. those platforms. And that's, I mean, that's, I've probably goes without saying, I've never created a video game, but especially something like that. It's not, I mean, you have to kind of create a whole world and it all has to work together and characters. I mean, it seems like it's okay. uh, it's like almost like writing a, a novel, but more, it's a whole production. Yeah. It's a whole production. Yeah. And also, I mean, I'll, I'll say this about everything because everything to me is related to standard, the company that we're doing now, but also had a lot of, you know, relevant pieces because this was pre-Unity, pre all these like off-the-shelf engines that you can use as a game developer. So really it was all from scratch. Oh, and wow. you're, you know, unlike unlike most tech plays today where, you know, if it's web or whatever, you're, you're sitting pretty high up on the tech stack. Uh, when you Back in the day when you're doing this for a PS3, you're, you're targeting some very low-level stuff and it's it's just a lot of lot of extra work yeah. um, that you have to, have to be able to do. And, you know, today we're doing a lot of high-performance computing. So that skill set is very... Uh, is very relevant. Like how do you squeeze out as much as possible from the right. GPUs inside of a store? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It turns out to be actually quite similar to how you squeeze everything out of a PS3. And so that was uh, you worked on that for three years. It launched. How did it do? Pretty well. Um, you know, on a you know personal personal story. You know, we 
this was not a VC backed startup. I was going to ask, like, so are not interested. Right. <laughs> I can tell you lots of funny stories about trying to raise VC money in that for that company. So we, you know, we were personally leveraged, you know, credit card debt, everything. I was oh, wow. six figures in debt to, to launch this game. Oof. Um, but you know, that's, that's what you got to do sometimes. What's the but, best, you know, what's the best VC story? The VC, I imagine they're all rejection stories, but everybody <laughs> has podcast <laughs> has, has good ones. Um, is there one that, uh, sticks out that you remember? There's one that I absolutely remember and I, I won't say the name, but, um, you know, I, I emailed probably 100 VCs and none of them, none of them got back to me. They all have this this little script on their website, which is basically, hey, if you can't get an intro to me, like, don't even bother. Yeah, me. yeah, like, I've seen those. Yes. <laughs> very egalitarian. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, th- this one I actually did have an intro to through a friend of a friend. So he took the meeting and he, you know, I, I came into his office and I was I presented to him the game and what we were doing. And he was like, okay, thanks for the presentation. And he pulled out a binder of his portfolio of companies. He flips it open and he goes to one company and he's like, I can't remember what it was. But he's like, this company is building a platform. They're doing this, this, and this. And this is why it's going to scale financially. And he flips to another one. He's like, this company is building a platform. This is why it's going to scale financially. Right. And he looks at me and he says, don't you want to build a platform? And I said, I guess so. And he said, okay, <laughs> this is the end of the meeting. <laughs> No, I left. Right. right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, video games aren't great platforms. Of course, some of them make wow. billions of dollars effectively as platforms, but most of them don't. Uh, the game did okay. Yeah. We, we we did seven figures, which was nice, but really just enough to to recoup oh. after after all the you know after the publishing fees and et cetera, et cetera. It was close to breaking even. So at least I wasn't right. in debt afterwards, which is the nice part. <laughs> right. Then so you you switch from that to. Is that what you would switch from that to what you're doing now? Because that doesn't seem like a... Um, a natural... <laughs> a, yeah, a natural uh, transition. I had, had one stopping point in between where I worked for the federal government at the Securities and Exchange Commission. <laughs> you worked for the SEC? I worked for the SEC, yeah. Doing what? I, I was, I was uh, overseeing some of their tech teams, their, their first collection of projects for machine learning infrastructure uh, and a lot of the tooling that's set directly on top of that infrastructure for detecting fraud, insider trading, cherry picking, front running, market ignition, you, you, you name it. We were building right. the first models for, for detecting that and acting on it. Um, oh, wow. When was that? I think I joined probably around 20, let me see, probably around 2014 is when I joined okay. the SEC. I spent about three years there. Oh, wow. That must have been an interesting an interesting kind of coal face to work on. Yeah. Well, it was super greenfield. It was also sort of like the most ideal startup within a government you can imagine. We had buy-in up to the commissioners uh, and they knew, you know, basically that we had to do this work. They didn't know exactly what it needed to look like because they weren't, they weren't quants, but they, they knew that we were the team to, to do it. So it was very wow. empowering. So did you take your team who built the video game and they said, okay, you come here, do this because of your background and your skills. We know you can do this type of work, basically. So I, I, I came as an individual to, oh, to okay. the SEC, actually. Although I, I ended up, so Michael, who's our, as I mentioned, our COO, I ended up bringing him into the SEC to manage one of our projects a little, a little bit later on. And then the current company, Standard, a lot of people did come from, from the SEC, but more on the research and technology right. side. And so when you left, were you happy with how you left it in terms of what the ACC is able to do now relative to what they were able to do then? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's still an infinite amount of yeah. work to be doing. It's, it's kind of crazy. You know, like what's crazy about Wall Street is that it's one of the best funded places in the world to 
do mathematics and modeling. Uh, and it goes way back to, you know, the current ML craze that everyone's jumping on. This was, you know, this is the original applied ML. Uh, and you've got basically unlimited money and some of the smartest people mm. in the world working on, on you know, understanding the, the market. Sometimes it's a good end. Finding an edge, however that may yeah. be. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so, you know, you, you've got a lot of catch up to do and you don't have as much funding, but you do have some advantages at the SEC uh, that you have to capitalize on. So, you know, you're not online, you don't, you don't have to make a decision in a microsecond. You can right. take six months to make a decision and you can be targeted in how you go after um, different signals and, you know, pick and choose. So th- th- there are some advantages you have to really capitalize on to make the biggest impact. But yeah, I would say it's, you know, it was pretty green filled. So it was great to see some of the impacts that we can have. And that, that team is is still there. The wider team is still there you know, continuing to develop those tools and, and keep pushing it forward. So video games, financial regulation, and now cashierless checkout. Why? 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 <laughs> so what was <laughs> that? Basically <laughs> the same thing, right? <laughs> um, so what, what uh, convinced you to make this leap? What was it that, and I don't know if it's something to do with the capabilities of the technology that weren't available then or what, what have you, but... Yeah, what made you jump from that into this world, which is obviously very different? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a technologist by heart, so it's, for me, it's not the application that matters. And you know, I'm, I'm super passionate about machine learning. And roughly, you know, six, six-ish years ago, there was this watershed moment in computer vision in particular, where for certain tasks, computers were reaching parity, sometimes exceeding humans. Uh, inaccuracy mm-hmm. of, of, of some of these tasks, not all tasks. And was this day, the um, the, the work of Fei-Fei Li at Stanford? The um... She was leading a lot of this. ImageNet in particular is the... ImageNet, that's the, what I was talking about, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, since, you know, it's kind of, it's always fun to watch because basically every three months there's a new world record, basically, state of the art yeah. on ImageNet. It's just, you know, it really has, everyone keeps wondering, like, when does deep learning plateau? When are we going to run out of steam here? And it just hasn't, hasn't yeah. happened yet years later but you know that back then was when we were just starting to reach human parity and it was you know one lab after another that was and was that that six years ago what was the the moment was it being able to tell the difference between i think it was the 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 chihuahuas and the blueberry muffins was that what you're talking about or yeah exactly so ImageNet is is a collection of you know many images like a million images where there's about a thousand different classes they call it so you have muffin dog different dog breeds car, bicycle, whatever it is, you know, pretty, pretty generic stuff, but it's exactly the kind of thing that computers just never were good at. And people suspected we might not ever be good at, but yeah, for me, seeing that, seeing that kind of breakthrough and that parody, reaching that parody. And then since then exceeding that, it it changes everything. If you think about it, like Mm. if, if a computer can see as well as, as a human, it should change everything, really every industry in the world. And if you think about the history of technology in the last, you know, 50 years, 70 years, it's really been about the digital revolution. Everything is behind a screen. It's behind yep. a keyboard. And that's awesome. It's been incredibly transformative, but it's all locked away in the single digital world. But what's amazing about computer vision is that it unlocks the physical world. Yeah. You put up a camera and it's seeing the same thing that we're seeing and that it can, it can help enable that physical world. So my, my, my thesis was, look, this is going to be, this is going to be as big as the mobile revolution, as big as the internet revolution. And I've got to be, I've got to be in here on ground floor. That was, that was, kind of this clear thought that I had. That was the broad thought. So then how did you whittle down to retail? So I, I started a, really actually we already had a discussion group with a, with a bunch of researchers, both within SEC and, and the broader industry, Fenron and a few other players, where we were just discussing a lot of papers, basically mm. machine learning papers. Some of them were relevant to the financial modeling that we were doing, but it was also just 
just really broad machine learning. And we, we spent about a year just looking through all the relevant literature, looking for new possible applications. And then on the side, me and Michael were also doing market analysis, calculating the TAM, yeah. trying to figure out which, which of these ideas were actually viable. And it was really a combination of two things. We were looking for something that was very challenging, but still feasible. We wanted something that was going to rarefy the air so that there was a huge barrier to entry, but it wasn't going to be impossible. And we were looking for something that made financial sense, that we thought the product market fit was going to be great and that the market itself was huge. And, and really, checkout ticks all those boxes, right? Retail is $25 trillion industry. There's hundreds of billions spent each year on, on cashiering. Yep. And the technology looked like it was just about, it was definitely not possible six years ago, but at the time it was like you could see a three path. years ago when we started. Yeah, you could see a path. It was, it was, it was obvious that this was going to happen. And so you start the company and this time around, I mean, you've obviously raised, what is it? 80, 80 odd million now in the past three years? Uh, about 86. Yeah. yeah. So more successful this time. <laughs> more successful. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't charged anything to my personal credit card, which has been, it's been really, That's really solid. nice for yeah. my, for my own stress levels. Yeah. So where, where has it got to? Cause the, I mean, most people, they think of Amazon Go and that's all they think. I mean, that's all anybody knows. And Amazon Go, of course, is these, there's maybe a dozen stores now. And I've used them. You have an app that you download. You use a QR code. You check in. A little gate opens. You walk around, pick up what you want. And then you walk out through the gates and that's it. There's no cashier and it's kind of presto changeo. But these are obviously purpose-built stores specifically for this technology so where are we in terms of what you guys are trying to do? And, you know, you talked about the path what you saw six years ago. What's the path we're looking at now? Yeah, really great question. You know, if you, if you abstract away the, the technology and the computer vision and what has to happen behind the scenes, the, the outcome that we all want is, is the obvious part. And the outcome is we should all just stop thinking about checkout. We should stop thinking about transacting. We should do to shopping what Uber and Lyft did to taxis. You know, you... You think about where you want to go, and that's basically it. Yeah. Pull out the app, you put in the address, car shows up, you get out, and you're done. Whereas, you know, the past with taxis was you're thinking about the transaction, you're thinking about the touch screen and putting the tip in and pulling out your card, and yeah. swiping, whatever it is, right? Waiting for the receipt. You just stop thinking about this service as a transaction anymore. And really, that's what that's what that's what shopping should be. You should walk into any store in the world. You should treat that store like it's your personal pantry. Just grab what you want, leave, and stop worrying about this being a transactional moment. Right. I think that's this like incredibly liberating transition that, that we're going to see in, in shopping. But it's, you know, there's a, there's a path there. So for me, that, that path is in order to achieve it, in order to really be everywhere, you've got to build this technology to scale and you've got to build this technology to go to existing stores. There's millions of stores yeah. in the world. There's, there's no way Amazon even with you know, what, I don't know what it is now, $2 trillion market cap can, can possibly build a million stores, yeah. 100,000 stores. Uh, it's just too expensive and would take too long. So our, you know, our, our thought here early on was, look, we have to build this to scale and we have to build it as a retrofit, as a transformative technology. So it really changes the entire way that you think about the tech because you mm. don't control the environment like Amazon does. Yeah. You can't control the shelves. You can't put sensors on the shelves. You can't put gates up in the front of the store. You can't tr control the way that stocking works even. You know, there's this funny thing where if you walk into a ghost store, you'll see these slots that are empty. Yeah. And they'll have little cute signs up that say like so hot it's gone or whatever it is. They try to turn a negative into a positive. Um, but the truth is in retail, it's it's considered a sin to do that. It's to have empty, air. empty shelf space. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You just you never do it. And if you're out of ketchup, 
that's okay. You put more mustard there. Like just always fill yeah. up the available space. Uh, but it's, it's actually a huge limitation of the Amazon system that this, the shelves have to be structured in a specific way. In, in other spot. words, you can't put the sandwich on shelf B when it's actually supposed to be on shelf Q. That's the, exactly. That just does not work. Yeah, right. exactly. Exactly. Right. I didn't know that. Which is just a... Yeah, it's a complete change in the way that retail works. Right. And even just the structure of the shelf, there's there's very nice dividers between all the items to prevent that from happening. But, you know, you go into a, a typical convenience store and it's just, it's chaos. That's what retail yeah. is. Retail is, you know, here's all these yeah. amazing products I want to sell as many as possible. Let's just get them all onto the shelf. Um, and we're going to yeah. keep putting them up there as quickly as possible. That's, that's the way retail works. So if you're going to embrace that and make this technology work, you really have to think from day one about targeting that that environment, mm. which is, which is how we approach things. It's let's, let's not make this custom tailored for our own store. Let's, let's target the true in the wild variety of, of retail. That's really what we've, we've been building. What we're really excited about here today is we've just launched three of our first ever retros. I mean, we really picked three as the number because we wanted to show that there was, there was scale here. These aren't, right. these aren't pilots. It's demonstration of repeatability that we've right. taken three stores and said, look, we'll, we'll convert all of these with the same technology just to show that we've, we've built this for scale and we're ready to start rolling this out to not just dozens, but hundreds and thousands eventually of stores. So we're, we're incredibly excited that those stores launched today. And it was, you know, it was really a huge feat to, to transition from a store that you control everything. So we actually launched our own store, a standard store here in, right. in San Francisco about two years ago, where just like Amazon, we control everything. It's been a big shift to go from that to these these true retail environments where it doesn't matter what happens, you can't control it and you have to be ready to to adjust to it. And those three stores, are they kind of different type of stores or, you know, in terms of their layout or what they're selling? Or Because, I mean, when you talk about just the chaos in which you have to operate, I mean, it truly is chaos, especially if you're talking about rolling this out to all kinds of retailers all over the place selling different stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I can give you mundane uh, stories and, and less mundane stories about how, how different things are. And, you know, the truth is, this, this is actually something that's really relevant to the broader computer vision industry of mm. like autonomous vehicles, for example. They talk about this long tail distribution of reality. I don't know if you've heard that phrase, but yep. it you know, kind of refers to how, how big the world is. Like, it's just, yes. if, you, if you're going to be everywhere, you're going to see an insane variety of things. Uh, and we, we see that even with just the three stores that we're in. And there's mundane versions of this, like I said, where... You know, these three stores, for example, just happen to have three entirely different types of refrigerators. And what I mean by that is, you know, one of them is the kind that you grab a handle and you open. Yeah. One of them is the kind where you put your hand through. Uh, one of them is the kind that you slide the door. And you think about that as being pretty mundane, but those are three completely different types of actions that the computer vision system needs to be able to understand yeah. and and handle appropriately. And again, we, we, we didn't have the freedom to say, actually, we're just going to make it all the same type of refrigerator across these three types of stores. So that's kind of the, the mundane example. But, you know, the, the less mundane examples um, and the more like natural to, to retail is that you change the way that you run your store yeah. on a daily basis. Are these Circle K stores? No, so the, these are Compass stores. Oh, okay. um, so Compass Compass actually is, a, you may be familiar, is a, is a UK retailer. Yeah, yeah. Although a lot of their deployments, a lot of their stores are here in, in North America. So we, we just launched three stores with them, one in Houston, one in Toronto, and one in North Carolina. Gotcha. Um, so they're, you know, they're, they're convenience store-esque in terms of being CPG oriented and being about delivering convenience to, to those shoppers, which is really where we wanted to, to start. For us, the, the whole point of this technology, while it is to go everywhere, the initial point is to deliver convenience to, to shoppers. And if you're in a, in, a, in a place where people go every day, if you're going to that, that convenience store to 
you know, grab a sandwich, grab a yeah. drink, and you're doing it every day. Like that's where we want to deploy so that we can save you time and really get, you know, kind of win the hearts and minds of that shopper so that they download the app and are committed to using this, you know, ideally forever. To enjoy more of the latest news from Silicon Valley, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Search thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley so that they know I sent you. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And so how does it work? Because if going back to the Amazon example, which everybody kind of has read about, and it's, you know, purpose-built, controlled environment, etc., crucially with a gate that you have to scan into to get into. How does this work in terms of like the retrofit? Like what do you have to do to that store and how does the, what is the experience? So we, we really didn't want to put the gates up. That was a big part of, of our initial assumption. You know, if you have to change the layout of these stores, it's just going to be way too, you're basically building a new store at that point. The way that we do it is there's an app that you have to have as a, as a shopper, of course, but any point during your shopping trip, it could be the beginning, middle, or end, assuming you've got the app, you can just bump our check-in sticker mm-hmm. and works via NFC, and that will check you in. So you don't need to pull up a QR code and scan it, et cetera. It's just right. a simple tap. But more importantly is you can do it any time throughout the entire store. So we have these stickers up in various locations to make it just really easy as a shopper to say, right. okay, I'm going to go ahead and check in here. That's that's basically it as a shopper. Have the app, bump the bump the sticker, and and you're good. Nothing else. And then you just walk out. And you walk out. Yep. So what have you put in the store to be able to do that? Are there kind of cameras everywhere, and like kind of what is what is happening behind the curtain to make that possible? Yeah. So it's it's overhead cameras only is how we how we do this. Vision only is, is usually how we refer to it, and that that's really key because if. You know, if you think about the infrastructure of a store, there's already pretty robust infrastructure yeah. in the ceiling for lighting, of course, but also sometimes for Wi-Fi. Sometimes they already have cameras for security, et cetera. So there's already pretty robust infrastructure. It's it's very lightweight for our GSPs, we said, our general service providers to be able to get in there uh, and, and install cameras. So you don't even have to shut down the store. It's a really light touch. Right. And importantly, we don't have to touch the shelves, et cetera. So you can set this up in, I don't know, like a weekend? For example, or after yeah. hours. Yeah, after hours. But you know, sometimes we'll do it during hours, especially if it's a if it's a twenty four seven store. We'll we'll usually target sometime overnight, so there's less traffic. But you don't have to shut down the store. It's not disrupting anything. 
And is it just like what a camera every, I don't know, six feet, 10 feet? Yeah, that's a good eyeball estimate. It's, I I like to say it's, you know, it's more than a typical security system, probably by like a factor of two to three. Right. Uh, Although the, the layout's going to be different. If you think about a security system today, usually you're going to put cameras near the exit and near the tills. Whereas those are actually the least interesting places for us. We put cameras near the shelves so that we can see what's happening as you shop. Right. So you have these cameras. They just kind of know, like, Danny's picked up a sandwich and a bag of chips and a bottle of water. Those cameras can see, what, the barcode? Is that what, that's the key there? So you can't necessarily see the barcode. We don't have that. They're decent cameras, but they're not. Like, they're not like 8K crazy. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to understand is just, like, the, the actual tech it's like, it makes me think of like in the States, dates myself, like enemy of the state where you're just like zooming down and seeing From the satellite. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if that's even necessary. I don't know if you just need to identify it as a bottle of Avion and that's enough. Yeah. So we do need exact UPC codes in right. order to be able to transact. So we integrate with the POS system and ultimately what we send the POS needs to be effectively what a barcode scanner would send. So we need to ship over those UPC codes. And the way that you do it is fairly multifaceted. So there's a few different approaches and not, none of those approaches by themselves is, is really good enough. Yeah. Um, so it's really a confluence of, of all of them. But the two, the two major approaches, and there's, there's varieties of both, but the two major approaches are, you can we call it hand region classification, which is I want to try to figure out what you're holding. Hmm. I want to look at that thing and just try to figure it out. Just like you would as, as, a, as a person. This, yeah. this goes all the way back to that ImageNet yeah. um, task, which is computers actually are really good at this now. Um, so th- this task in specific, uh, in particular, of showing a, a computer a picture of a person holding something and asking it what that thing is, it's it's well beyond what a human could do. Right. It's just just much more accurate. Yeah. But it's actually a really hard task. You know, yeah, if I'm yeah. holding up, I've got a, I don't have any kid friendly skews here, but I've got a bottle of whiskey here. And if I'm holding up a bottle of whiskey here, Glenlivet, um, very nice. Yeah, you can tell that it's Glenlivet, but <laughs> but you're not reading that it's Glenlivet. Yeah, yeah. My hands covering most of, but you just you kind of recognize yeah. some of the logo some of the lettering, some of the fonts, and that's enough for you to say, okay, that's a bottle of, of Glenlivet. That's that's essentially what the, the hand region classification is doing. So we showed a bunch of pictures ahead of time of what it looks like to hold Heinz ketchup in somebody's hand, and it learns how to identify that in the future. So and is that physical work of you just like taking a bunch of pictures of like you holding Glenlivet in a different way? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, we call it data collection. Um, and yeah, it's a, it's a fairly laborious task and it, it, on the surface might sound financially infeasible, but what's really nice is a bottle of Glenlivet. I mean, this is all thanks to CPG brands. Mm. It's, it's the same everywhere, right? You know, a, a can of Coca-Cola is the same in Circle K as Compass as yeah. Walmart. It's, it's the same everywhere. And even just within a single fleet, you get that amortized cost if you're going to do 10,000 stores across, right. across the fleet. Right, right, right. So that's, that's really where the, the economics makes sense is, okay, great. It's going to be expensive to build the system, but if you're doing it everywhere, then the costs are, are, are very manageable. So do you have an army of people just like holding different common products and just photo, 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 photo? I mean, is that, is that like, that's the kind of the back end of this? I mean, like, like I said, there's a lot of different systems, but this system in particular, um, yeah, we have, a, we have an ops team that specializes. It's not an army. Um, we, we have a lot of we have a lot of tooling and uh, you know and sophisticated ways to facilitate this and make it make it fairly fast. Um, but yeah, there is an ops team that that builds these data sets for us. Right, and that just requires 
physically manipulating things and taking photos and putting that into the uh, sausage machine, basically. Exactly. Yeah, you push it into the sausage machine and then hopefully sausage comes out. So is this scalable? Because, you know, Walmart, for example, I feel like you could spend a decade doing that task to get everything mm-hmm. inside of Walmart and doing it to a, the degree that actually it works. It's not as bad as you would think on first blush. So yeah. Walmart has... On the order, you know, a, a big super center can have a few hundred thousand unique items, which is huge. The stores that we're in right now usually have hundreds to multiple thousands of unique right. SKUs, which is much more manageable. But, you know, the, the rough math, just these aren't the exact numbers, but, you know, roughly if you think it takes about a minute per SKU, per unique SKU, maybe it costs a dollar to do that. Even if you go to a, the full Walmart fleet, which has millions of unique SKUs, yeah. you're talking about millions of minutes, millions of dollars, which is absolutely worth it to to be able to, you know, facilitate checkout free technology for for the full Walmart fleet. Right, right. Do you know this works already? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we've been testing it at our own store. That was that was the whole reason that we opened standard store here in right. SF was, you know, we thought, look, before we put this into a, a client store, before we work with somebody else, we want to see this work ourselves. And also it was a great dog feeding opportunity because you don't really know how people are going to shop in this new world yeah. with autonomous checkout until until it's happening. You don't know what that customer interaction is going to look like. So it's been super instrumental for us to have real shoppers. I will say that by far the most aggressive shoppers we get are all VCs. Of course. <laughs> you know, if there's ever if there's ever ever someone that is coming into our store just wrecking stuff, absolutely it's a VC. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> they at least tell us ahead of time. They'll be like, look, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to town in your store. Well it's funny because <laughs> when I was in Amazon Go, I was trying to be like, all right, let me because you just walk out, I'm like, let me like hold this thing under my armpit right? or whatever. And it always got it right. But again, I mean, it's, it's a different environment than what you're talking about, but it is kind of, I mean, obviously picked up at somewhere along my shopping journey that that's what I had. But certainly when yeah. I was walking out, it was not visible as far as I could tell. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot easier with Amazon because they have sensors in the shelves. So, you know, even if you can't see it, if you're grabbing that bottle of Evian, whatever it is, you know, there's a sensor underneath that bottle that's going off yeah. the second that you take it. Um, so that, that facilitates it. We have to be much more clever about how we, you know, fuse all the different signals. But fundamentally the same thing. You gotta you don't necessarily have to see it in the person's hand. That's that's one of the ways that we work. But if you can see it on the shelf or see the shelf change or you know, see some signal, you can then back out and infer what it was and who took it. It sounds like there's two or three kind of different levels of inference here that gets you to the the right answer is the idea exactly and so was it easy to raise money for this well i mean obviously you had your first <laughs> go around which is quite difficult yeah for sure for sure um yeah i mean i, I like to say that amazon is our personal marketing firm mm. and you know they've, they've really just trailblazed for us in a, in a pretty amazing way so when we when we were first raising you know you know just a few months into the company amazon had just announced that they were going to do, they hadn't launched yet, but they were announcing Go. Um, and that just, you know, it changed the dynamics of all of our conversations, both for oh, retailers really? and right. NBCs. Yeah, I mean, suddenly this is, you know, if it's just us without Amazon and, you know, we were just a bunch of people basically in a garage, we literally were building our lab in a garage at the time. Is this possible? Like, I don't know. But suddenly Amazon says it's possible. Like, okay, this is possible. This is going to happen. Yeah. And you've got the biggest retailer, at least by market cap in the world, that's basically saying they're going to roll this out. That's that says something. So they've they've really just kind of helped trailblaze for us, and I think that's also driven the market towards us. Retailers yeah. know that Amazon's coming. The expected experience is going to 
be drastically escalated. So for example, like a conversation with Compass, you know, because I know that traditional retail is often traditional. Is that something that they come to you with and be like, hey, we really need to get ahead of this with this, we see this is coming? Or is it more kind of like, hey, we're these wacky Silicon Valley guys and let us show you all this cool stuff we can do? Definitely the first one. So, right. you know, I, I think, you know, probably the thing that's been the, the best tailwind for us is that we don't do any outbound sales. So we don't, we don't do any outreach. Everything is 100% inbound, which has been really, obvious. obviously it's great for us because it means less work. But yeah, it's very much companies reaching out to us saying, hey, we, we know that we need this. We know that the writing's on the wall and this experience is going to be the, the default experience. And I think different retailers have different estimates of two, three, four or five years, but they all know that it's, that it's coming. That was going to be my other question is, what is the path going back to what we were, kind of where we started? Here you are, you're about to, you're just launching this in three stores. These are pilots, presumably. So we don't we don't like the word pilot because <laughs> you know it's <laughs> talks, what, you know, what, um, what word should we use? Uh, we just say the first the first three the first three um, stores with more to, more to come. So you know it, with with this particular retailer, um, you know we already have a pipeline of additional stores where we're you know serving the stores, getting ready for installation, and you know they're they're really bullish with us to to roll out further and faster. And is that happening in the UK as well, or just in America at the moment? So the, the stores launching are in North America at the moment, but yeah, we're we're looking at additional regions that we can we can keep launching right. to. But just in terms of the the capabilities and the, this technology, I mean, if we're having this conversation five years from now, does everybody have one of these stores or many stores in their? You know, I drive down the street and instead of going in and paying my cash, my local cashier guy, I'm just walking in, walking out. Like how 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 do you see this evolving as a technology? For you guys, but also more broadly as just the industry. Yeah, for sure. I mean, now that we, I like, I like to say that we're closing the chapter on feasibility. We, we knew a couple of years ago that you could do this in a controlled environment. And now we finally know that you can do this in an uncontrolled environment as a retrofit. So we're kind of like closing that chapter on, can you just do this? And the next chapter is really about, let's make this repeatable. Let's operationalize this. And we've already been working on that, which is the whole reason for launching three stores today was to show we, we tackled some of that. Um, but obviously, that's that's the big work in front of us is, I don't want to do three stores. I want to do 30,000 stores over yeah. the next you know, three, four years. Um, and I, I think those are roughly the kind of numbers that we're going to see at least five years out, You know, somewhere between 10 and 100,000 stores across the industry. Hopefully, we're the lion's share of that. Of course. That's what we're, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. what we're gearing towards. Um, but you know what's what's interesting is even at 100,000 stores, it's a drop in the bucket compared to global retail. So we're going to have to be strategic about what geos do we go after? Do we go after urban areas? I think likely if you're you know if you're in you know, North America or, or Europe and you're in an urban area, in five years probably a very good chance that you've at least shopped at one of these stores. If if not, that it's actually across the street from you and you're you're able to go there basically every day. So I think somewhere between those two will be most people's experience. And have you guys done much thinking a workaround? what this does to retail and particularly retail jobs because a lot of things like autonomous cars are going to put all taxi drivers out of business and you know there's always like these very you can kind of make a leap between what the technology looks like and what that might do to the existing industries yep. sometimes it's a a help and sometimes it's a total scourge that just destroys everything that was before it how do you see that playing out especially when i'm i'm thinking about our UK listeners where the the high street, you know, every neighborhood has a high street and, you know, they're struggling a lot. Yeah. 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 I and mean, there's a lot to, lot to unpack there. When we, when we started this, we were actually in New York. So mm. you know, a lot of similar stories there. And Michael and I would go talk to 
to store managers and store owners as we were, uh, you know, we were originally assuming our go-to-market was going to be targeted towards those mom and pops or the smaller, smaller scale chains. Uh, and they were all having a, a lot of problems. You know, their yeah. margins were getting squeezed. The big players were able to compete in a way that they weren't able to. And it was just really hard to, to keep a store open. Uh, and we, you know, we, we said, look, if we bring this technology, we can actually help a lot of these, these smaller stores keep running just by helping them reduce their costs. It was, it was definitely something uh, that we were and still are excited about. So I think that's, that's going to be a piece of the story, especially on that five-year arc of how can we get this out, not just to the Circle Ks and compasses of the world, but how do we get this out to, to mom and pops everywhere so that we're really making an equitable playing field here and making it easier to, to run a store. So I think that that's really important for maintaining the diversity of, of yeah. the economy. It's it's kind of like what happened with with e-commerce too. You know, it's it's so cheap now to run a storefront that you can actually have a lot more indie store owners, which is which is great. It's something I'd love to see. So that's that's kind of one one part of that story. The, the other part of the story is we're not building autonomous stores. We're building autonomous checkout. And there's still a lot of things that go into running a store that we're not automating away. Customer service and stocking, helping people find what they need to find. And the goal is to really just allow stores to focus on that. It might still end up being a little bit less uh, operations than is today. And I think some of that additional can go to beefing that up, having yeah. a better customer service. But I think actually some of it's going to be going to extending store hours and ultimately opening more stores. You know, a lot of retailers would love to have more stores, but right now it's, it's too expensive uh, to have a store in, in one location that might have not enough foot traffic, for example, to justify the operations. Right. Um, so I'm hoping that this lowers the, the cost point enough that we can you know, really see a, a, a much wider deployment of, of, of retail. Did Bodega Gate hurt or help you guys? Do you know what I'm? Do, <laughs> just, you, do you know what I'm talking Stockwell? about? This, Stockwell is that the? the well, and that's the, it's this. I think it was what two years ago now. This these two former Google guys announced this yeah. company Bodega, and they're like, basically, we're gonna put the neighborhood Bodega out of business because we're basically creating these like automated giant vending machines in your neighborhood. Yeah. Isn't this wonderful? And they were just hound, they were hammered. Yeah. hounded, hounded out of existence within weeks it felt like after that absolutely event. yeah I, they actually they did stick around because i I've, I've chatted with them so they rebranded as stockwell a big part of that backlash right was that people felt like they were appropriating this yeah. this neighborhood name of bodegas uh which is yeah i think you know hindsight's 2020 yeah, yeah. but <laughs> um yeah ab- absolutely so I, I think part of that story was the automation piece of the story and you know you know when i think about you know especially coming from, from New York and how uh, important bodegas are to neighborhoods there. Like, it's not really the kind of place that you're going to see autonomous checkout be a major impact on, on labor. That bodega is typically one person and you need that. You need at yeah. least one person in the store anyway to, to make sure that there's you know, support and stocking, et cetera. Yeah. But we can make that, that person's life a lot easier. They don't have to worry about checkout now. Now they can just worry about having you know, better customer relations, et cetera. So I think that's an ongoing story that we're going to hear. There's a similar flavor of this happening in Japan where we're, we're also, we have offices in Japan who are really interested in that market. Mm-hmm. And if you talk to the convenience store chains over there, or even just convenience store owners, because it's largely a franchisee model, they just can't find enough people to run yeah. these stores. And they're, the people that are working are just worked to the bone because it's, you know, it's, just, it's so hard to keep a store open 24-7. And I, I think it's really a chance for us to be able to go in there just not, we're not really displacing anybody. We're just making their lives easier so that it's easier to run that store and they can actually have more stores. A lot of those convenience store chains want to open even more. Uh, it's just, it just doesn't make sense to do it right now. Is it up to you guys or is it up to your customers in terms of 
socializing just that different shopping experience. Because when you walk into an Amazon store, you know, because you have to tap in and tap out and there's not a cash. I mean, it's very clear what you're doing. If you walk into a compass store, Circle K, whatever it is, and it's just like, I've known this for my whole life. You're going to have a lot of people kind of unsure of what to do or they feel like they're shoplifting or like, you know, how's that all work? Yeah, I think it's going to be a big part of that equation for the next couple of years is not just user acquisition, but user education and getting people comfortable with, with this new style of checkout. And, you know, luckily the whole point of this is that it's simple and low friction. So it's, it's not that hard to yeah. teach someone how to, how to do this. It's much easier than a self-checkout machine that's always yelling at you for misplaced item in, in bagging area, yes, whatever yes. the phrase is. Yes. <laughs> so, so that, that's good. You know, our, our work is going to be easier here, but no, there's, there's still going to be real work. And, you know, when we, when we launched standard store, we decided, look, we're going to invest in having a, we call him a store ambassador, mm. which is, you know, it's, it's not a cashier. It's just someone who's there to greet people. You know, if they have questions about yeah. the app or the technology, they can help with that. Amazon does something very similar. You know, actually, if you, if you notice when you walk into a ghost store, they have many more employees than a typical convenience store. So they're really over-indexing on yeah. reaching out to that, to that shopper. So we're, we're definitely thinking of doing similar things as we roll out more widely. And maybe it's, you know, for an initial period after a store launch where we think about having that that ambassador there to help help onboard people. But I do think there's there's a pretty hefty investment, not just monetary, but just in general, over the next couple of years to educate people and, and get that adoption high. But over time, I think that then rolls off as we've finished that education process. Um, and then it's just the standard that everybody expects. One question I had was around privacy. Because if you're just putting a whole bunch of cameras in a store watching people. Yeah, I, I could. we could probably have a whole... yeah hour-long podcast just on uh, just on privacy and not just for retail, but totally. your vision in general. Uh, yeah, I, I feel really strongly about this. And I think, this again, this is not just retail. I think it's it's really something I, I hope the whole computer vision industry takes very seriously. But there's really a genie here that you can't put back in the bottle for a lot of this. And, you know, facial recognition in particular is, is one of these technologies where you can't yep. change your face. It's not like your credit card. Once that biometric is out there, that's, that's it, right? You can be identified anywhere that you go if somebody has that, that technology. So I think it's incredibly important that the whole CV, computer vision industry, is, is being really thoughtful about this. Our principle here is we just don't do facial recognition. It's a bright red line. We'll never right. do facial recognition. And it, it's not that we treat it very seriously and are very secure. It's, it just doesn't happen inside of our system. So even the worst case, which you always have to plan for, uh, of our system being hacked and somebody getting access to everything on the system, there's, there's no biometrics loss. No one's going to get access to your to your facial biometrics. That's that's really important. Right. And I, I think ultimately that's the way to go is just an across the board ban on on facial recognition. Uh, but it's certainly what we've decided to go for as as standard. And then on that cost of cost affordability and making this something that is going to be practical for your corner store owner that isn't a big chain. Is the idea that like a lot of new technologies, you're starting out with like the Tesla model, like you're kind of starting out with roadster prices and then eventually coming down once you start to kind of operationalize this, as you say, to a point where this is something that is affordable for your yep. your average corner store. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like to say, especially internally, when we're, when we're having team meetings, I, I use that exact analogy, which is we just built the first couple of roadsters. We did it by hand. Uh, now we got to build the roadster factory because <laughs> we need yeah. to, we, we got to pump these things out. Yeah. And I think as we reach scale, the price comes down. It'll be, it'll be the same skew. Ultimately, it's not going to be a high end versus a low end checkout free experience. It's all going to be just, you know, there's a reason we called ourselves standard because it should yeah. just be standard everywhere. 
but yeah, I think that you, the price comes down exponentially and we're riding a lot of nice curves there. You know, in, NVIDIA is really driving this. There's a, almost a, it's like a super Moore's law, basically. Like if, if you think about how fast uh, GPUs are, mm. especially for deep learning workloads, it's, you're seeing like a two X every year, which is, which is really oh, nice. Really? Yeah. Which, I mean, that's nice for the entire AI yeah, industry, yeah, yeah. not just, not just us. Um, and then of course we're doing our own work to drastically reduce uh, our costs internally. So I think that both those combined and you see a really nice price reduction happening over the next couple of years to the point that, yeah, I think <clears throat> certainly five years from now, but I expect even sooner, this is going to be something that's so cheap that it's basically like a kit, a, a DYI kit that you can just, you know, buy from standard. Right. And, you know, there'll be some instructions on how to set this up in your, in your local store. And then you've, you're off to the races. That's, that's the vision. Yeah. I mean, that's really the only way that you're going to put this into 10 million stores. So just on the, just, playing that out that vision so you know in a couple of years if you can send that kit presumably by then you'd have a big enough library of products that it would include basically everything in their store already that's that's the hope that you you get you know let's say 98 or 99 percent coverage out of the box and then i I'm, i can't prognosticate completely five years in the future so i don't know exactly yeah. how the remainder of this works but you know that last one percent maybe you do the data collection yourself Right. Or maybe you send us the UPC and we go, you know, do this for you as a service. But, you know, one way or another, we, we will cross that last bit of the delta. But yeah, you right. get the, the vast majority just because CPGs are, you know, homogenous across the retail world. Right. So in that interim, it's about reducing these kind of computation costs and, and kind of scaling and also just building up this giant database of product codes and product pictures, yeah. basically. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just extending that. I, I like to call it pushing back the darkness of just in- increasing the circle of light that is all the things that we understand. It's not just SKUs, it's also actions. And some SKUs are, you know, making a cup of coffee, for example. Uh, right. Making sure we un- understand the difference between the different ways that a coffee might get made and how that might impact the price. So, that, yeah, there's, there's, there's a pretty broad variety of things. But, yeah, as we understand more and more, it makes it easier and easier to roll out to more and more stores. And that, that pushing back the darkness, is that just done? I mean, I know you have a small team who are kind of looking after that. But is that effectively done on something like MTurk or other, some, some other kind of like platform where you can just like pay people, whatever it may be, not very much, to just basically do different actions, take pictures of different products, whatever it may be? Yeah, yeah, for sure. A lot of that, so we do have some partnerships uh, where we work externally, uh, but a lot of this also is, is done in-house. Some of this, we looked to have partnerships with early on and it just wasn't, those companies didn't really didn't really exist. And there's, because of the physicality of a lot of this, yeah. it just wasn't, wasn't really primed. And all the, all the AI labeling companies in the world, especially when we started, were basically 100% geared towards autonomous vehicles because that's where the gold rush was. Uh, and at the time we were small peanuts and they didn't want to, change their tool chains just to just right. the standard. Nowadays it's different, but we've kind of already invested a lot internally. So it's, you know, it's, it's easier and more efficient now for us to do this ourselves in a lot of situations. Was there ever a moment where you thought, maybe this isn't going to work? <laughs> yeah. Multiple moments. <laughs> <laughs> because the way you talk yeah. about it now, it sounds like, well, this is just, you know, it's an inevitability, but I'm sure along that path, there's been a lot of moments where you're like, uh, Oh, Oh, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's been moments where things worked far too easily. Uh, you know, and you, you, you do, you know, you kind of follow the, the spell book, so to speak, which is how I view <laughs> deep learning. And, you know, you, you get the data and you do the labeling and you mix it together and you get this amazing model. 
and sometimes it just it blows my mind how, how good it is. But yeah, there's been some some of our systems that took a long time to get to good enough. Yeah, uh, they still have, they still have you know room to improve. Um, there's places where we're way better than humans, and places where we're not as good as humans. And you know, in some instances, and yeah, I think it's 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 been a really interesting path. You can never really predict when research breakthroughs happen. So yeah. that's that's always the most stressful part is when you're <laughs> when you're knee deep in something, and it's like this could take two weeks or two years, and I just I just don't know. So it's it's definitely a nicer place to be in today, knowing that we've crossed a lot of those hurdles. Yeah, but yeah, absolutely, this was this was a gnarly project, and honestly, will continue to be a really gnarly, interesting <laughs> research project. <laughs> um, well, I wish you luck on it. It's it's fascinating. I look forward to when you guys open a, a place in the Bay Area so I can go check it out. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Jordan for taking the time. I want to thank Daisy, uh, my producer, for... There's a few flubs in there, I'm not going to lie. I was a bit foggy from the cold. I'll just leave it at that. I had some issues there. I was kind of uh, lost the plot a couple times. She thankfully cut those out, so all you hear is the good stuff. But uh, anyhow, thank you for listening. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for telling your friends about this. And of course, thank you for rating and reviewing the show because I know you've done that. And if you haven't, just take a moment, do it now. Do it for me. I hope you guys have a fabulous weekend. I will be writing about this, perhaps the big tech crackdown that was announced this week. And we've got one, maybe two pods next week, depending on uh, a couple things that are still in flux. Probably looking at some more election tech and other things. So do keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson. You can read me on thetimes.co.uk. And you can email me, anything really, at danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Stay safe, stay sane. Bye-bye. This podcast was brought to you thanks to the support of readers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and get one month free at thetimes.co.uk forward slash Danny in the Valley. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.